Good morning, and I greet you in Jesus' name and welcome you to this part of our service. Glad for you visitors are here to help to swell the crowd a little. A lot of uh, a lot of our people were missing for one reason or the other this morning, and so uh, we're glad you're here and welcome back anytime. So I uh, I don't know how you're feeling about Christmas, as Cleon mentioned. Um, a little different than what we're used to in Minnesota to see warm weather and record-breaking temps and so on. But uh, I suppose we can still have Christmas nonetheless, can't we? And um, if, it, if it helps at all, you could think back what we were doing a year ago. A year ago, we barely made it to church. In fact, some of us didn't because the weather was so inclement and, uh, and inconducive to travel. But... Um, but anyway, um, I guess extremes are a part of life, and we have this extreme today. I always am a little bit, um, a little bit, uh, not, not quite sure what to preach about on a Christmas service like this or uh, Christmas theme. It seems like there's only a certain amount of chapters in the Bible that lend itself to that, and we kind of rotate through that. But it, a number of weeks ago. I actually think it was at ministers' meeting, there was a, a verse read that I thought, there's where I'm going for my Christmas message, because I knew I had to preach this sermon this morning. And um, after I looked at it, I'm like, you know, I, I just bet the uh, Sunday school uh, lesson is something close to that, because I kind of knew we were studying through John. And I looked, and sure enough, it was it was pretty closely related. And then I looked at the uh, at the lesson theme or whatever, uh, focus, and I thought, well, you know, if we stick with the focus, it, it shouldn't brush too hard against each other. But Cleon just about took it away from the focus this morning. <laughs> so we're going to be looking at a few of the verses that he looked at, but that's all right. We can uh, we can do that. I think we can still gain a little inspiration. If you will, just turn with me to First Timothy three. This is maybe a little unusual um, Christmas. Um, text perhaps, but this is where I found my inspiration, and I would like to read this verse to you, not really dwell here, but this is um, this is where I'd like to start out. So in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16, it reads like this, <clears throat> and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Now, the, the title I've given this message is a little little wordy, but it, it's something like this. The mystery of God in the flesh, why it matters that I accept that fact. And um, when you read this chapter 3 here, it almost seems like verse 16 is a little bit of an epitaph. It's like, why is that there? You know, he's talking about bishops and deacons and their responsibilities in the first part of the chapter. And um, then he gives a little personal instruction there in verse 15 about how that if he tarries long, that he, he's writing to Timothy, how he should know how to behave himself in the house of God, etc. And then he goes, and by the way, without controversy, there's no argument to what I'm just, what I'm going to tell you here. And he goes on, and, and, and we have this verse that we have here. And so it seems like, while the verse seems a bit out of context, it seems like Paul wished, wished to um, impress upon Timothy that this job that he had as, as uh, being a leader here in, in the church that he was uh, a part of um, was indeed, he was, he, was, he was involved in something that was much larger than life, and was exceptionally hard to comprehend. And so he calls it a mystery. He's, he calls it the mystery of, of godliness. It was, it was beyond the normal human ability to completely explain. And then he lists the things that he says are part of this mystery of godliness. And we're just going to bump through these very briefly. He said, first of all, he said, God was made flesh. He said, God was manifest, or we saw God in the flesh. That's, that's the first mystery that he, that he brings up here. 
And, and that's kind of where our lesson was today, how that you don't usually think of God and flesh as being the same thing. And, and so that's, when you sit down and you think about it, and we'll, we'll get to that a little later, it, the two are mutually exclusive. And yet he said, we saw that happen. We saw God in the flesh. He said, furthermore, this was, was ju- Jesus was justified in the spirit. Or in other words, he was vindicated. And to, to, to vindicate something, he was proven as true. And, and he said he was proven as true by the Spirit. And uh, we certainly have that happening at Jesus' baptism, his vindication. I would also suggest that perhaps even on the Mount of Transfiguration, whenever you heard that voice from heaven, um, I don't know where that voice came from or what that voice was, but uh, could have that been the Holy Spirit involved in that? I'm not prepared to necessarily argue that one way or the other, but it was very similar to the experience there at the baptism where this voice came from heaven affirming that Jesus was the Son of God. And then he says it was seen of angels, or this this um, Jesus was seen of angels, certainly was. Angels were present at his birth, uh, angels in the garden, whenever he was uh, suffering before his crucifixion. Um, I think there was angels interested the whole way through, I believe that. While they're not mentioned, I think they were. And then he said, the gospel was preached to the Gentiles. Up to this time, the gospel was more exclusive to the Jews. Yes, there were Gentiles, ways the Gentiles could approach uh, the Jewish God through a certain set of um, rituals, etc. But the, the gospel here, it says, is preached to the Gentiles. It was, actu- it was actively being offered and accepted by the Gentiles. The Gentile population of the church was growing as fast as the Jewish at that time. And then he said, not only that, he said it was believed on in the world. It was a worldwide phenomenon. Um, the gospel held appeal to all ethnicities, um, uh, hither and thither. And, much like Jesus said, whoever would believe in him could would not perish but have eternal life. It held appeal to everyone. And then finally, Jesus is received into glory. And we understand that as the resurrection, the ascension, um, a great mystery. That had never happened before. Um, well, I shouldn't say never. You did have you did have a few uh people that usurped death, uh Methuselah and Elijah come to mind. Those those folks didn't die, but um, but but the um, the phenomenon of um, of someone rising from the dead and uh, ascending into heaven and never dying again that had never happened. Lazarus was risen from the dead, but he died again, didn't he? He's still not he's not around today. <clears throat> and so these these mysterious things, if you will, are imperative to our Christian faith. And we're just going to focus on one of them, and you know what which one that is, the very first one that we, we uh, mentioned here, God being made manifest in the flesh. If you will not turn with me to Daniel 2.11, there's a really interesting verse here that, um, that emphasizes why this is such a, um, uh, such a noteworthy thing, you might say. So, Daniel 2, uh, this is the, the event where Nebuchadnezzar dreams a dream and he wakes up and he was like, that was a really neat dream I had. I was, that dream really impressed me, but for the life of me, I can't remember what that dream was. I don't know if you've ever had a dream like that or not, but that's what happened to him. He said, I know what I'll do. I'll call my soothsayers and my wise men and I'll get them to tell me the dream. And not only that, I'll have them interpret it while they're at it. So he calls his wise men and he said, you know, Tell me my dream and what, what it means. And they said, well, never in the history of mankind has anybody been asked to tell the person his dream and then interpret it. They said, We're, we'll be happy to interpret it, but please tell us your dream and then we'll tell you the interpretation. And it infuriated the king. He said, well, if you're going to be that way, I'll just, I'll kill you and make your house a dunghill unless you can, you can cough this up. And um, so verse 11 now is the uh, the um, rebuttal that the Chaldeans and etc. gave to him. It says, It is a rare thing that the king requireth, and there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. They're saying, you know, 
perhaps there would be a God somewhere that could do this for you. But you got to realize, God doesn't dwell with flesh, all right? And um, this this shows how the wise men of Babylon perceived God and man, all right? The two were just not one. Well, here we have something quite different. We have God becoming flesh. And so that that uh, that gives a, a a large significance to what we're talking about here. It was it was considered a, a complete impossibility, and yet that is what has happened. And um, and we want to um, we want to look at that here a little this morning. So I'd like to first of all just bump through some scriptures that support the fact that Jesus is God. Okay, so this is going to be a little exercise of just looking at scripture. The support that Jesus is God, then looking at some scripture that supports that he's man, and then we're going to wrap it up by um, by trying to um, understand why this is so important that God is both, or that Jesus is both. So the first one we're not going to turn to, but you can uh, you can jot it down if you're taking notes. In Isaiah 9-6, the very familiar verse that reads like this, <clears throat> For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, when you were born, your your father and mother probably gave you two names. Mine's Dwight Ray. Well, here, Jesus has four or five, I'm not sure. But, but they're big names, and they're significant. And two of them are Mighty God and Everlasting Father. Well, to the Jewish population, they knew who the Almighty God was and who the Everlasting Father was. And that, that was, that was God, right? What Isaiah here is saying, there's a time coming where there's going to be a child born that's going to bear that name. Now, I, my guess is that the Jewish people that received this prophecy, and maybe even Isaiah himself, probably didn't even fully grasp what they were saying. But um, this is proof from the Old Testament that if, if we believe the Bible, which we do, right, that this child that was born was one and the same as God and the Father. All right? All right, so another verse that we already read in our Sunday school lesson, so we won't turn to that one either, but it's, it's the very first verse of John. In the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And as Cleon pointed out, it was not a God, it was God. So, I mean, we're going to take that as face value. We have to believe that in the very beginning, before anything was, there was Jesus. Jesus was there. And um, so there's no argument to the fact that the only person that was before creation was God, and if Jesus was there, well, then he was God too, Right? Okay, now this one we will turn to in Luke one thirty-five. Another, another proof here that um, that Jesus is God. So Luke one and verse thirty-five. And the angel answered and said unto her, and this is, he's talking to Mary, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also the holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called, called the Son of God. Now here we have a, a most unusual thing. Um, so what is a spirit? What is the Holy Spirit? He is a spirit, right? I mean, it, he doesn't... He, I don't know how to describe a spirit. I'm not sure. But it is not flesh and blood, all right? But how a spirit conceives with a human and and produces the Son of God is a miracle that I can't fully explain. But that's what it says happens here. And Mary knew it, and Joseph knew it, that this was not a human flesh that was born of Mary. This was something other than that. And so... While others didn't believe it, and while um, Jesus was called a um, a son of um, some untoward activity, while he was living on this earth and falsely accused of that, uh, people that <clears throat> understood what had happened, 
knew that Jesus was not born of Joseph. He was not Joseph's son. He had no earthly father. It says the Holy Spirit had come upon Mary. She conceived and she bore this son. All right. Now let's turn to Romans 9, another uh, passage that we can draw from that that um, we can conclude that Jesus is the Son of God. So we're going to read uh, Romans 9, verse 1 to 5. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bury me witness in the Holy, Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, who are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who was over all, God blessed forever. Now, I'm only going to focus on the last two phrases of verse 5 here. And that is, Christ, as pronounced by Paul, is someone who is overall and is God-blessed forever. Now, while Paul is making the, the uh, argument here that Christ came through the flesh, through the Jewish line, whenever he gets to the part that he is God-blessed forever, only God can claim to be forever. Okay? That, that's it. And beings that Jesus is, again, God, he can claim that as well. And the thing of being over all, um, who, who of us can say that? What, what human person could ever say that? There were some kings that got really close to being over all in their time. But there's no, no king or person ever that lived in, in flesh could make the proclamation that he was over all, right? Uh, and you and I, uh, just for instance, no matter how our how large our holdings are, we're over a very minuscule amount of things. We just aren't over very much, are we? And so again, it's a it's a a confirmation that Jesus is something other than human. He is indeed God. Clean referred to these um, um, verses in in the Sunday school, and I'm just going to quote them again. This is another. Um, uh, pronouncement of Jesus as being God, and this comes from Colossians one fifteen to seventeen. <clears throat> Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are, that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Now, certainly, without a doubt, if what Paul said is true there, and and it is, um, certainly Jesus is God. How can you be before all things if you're not God? Uh, How can you be in the image of the invisible God? How can you create all things that are in heaven, in the earth, that are visible and are invisible, which I suppose is is um, probably referring to the angels and probably to galaxies of stars out there that we haven't discovered yet as humankinds. And then he goes on and he talks about the thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers and gives affirmation to what Daniel said multiple times in his, in his book that you know what? The Most High sets up and puts down who he will in the kingdoms of men. So while uh, Mr. Biden may think he was elected by the people, and, and perhaps there's an a element of truth to that, um, ultimately he's there because God wants him there for some reason. Uh, as vile as, as we might, um, might think the uh, administration to be, he is there for a reason. He's there because God put him there. I think it's also interesting that Paul makes the point here that by Jesus, all things consist. And and I'm not even quite sure what to do with that, what all to do with that particular phrase there. But what I think Paul is referring to is the fact that there are some inexplainables in life that um, we accept, but we don't fully comprehend. 
And one that, that amazes me, I, I'm a, I have a fairly small mind, and so small things impress me. But somebody tell me, what is, um, what is water made of? Somebody tell me what water's made of? What are the two elements that water's made of? All right, hydrogen and oxygen. Now, both of those elements, um, hydrogen is extremely flammable. Um, you don't want to necessarily light a match in a room full of, of hydrogen. And oxygen, when you take that and you you expend it upon a fire, what's it do? It makes it go hotter, right? So we have these two elements that if you took them apart and you lit the hydrogen and you blew the oxygen on it, you'd have an out-of-control fire like you couldn't possibly probably believe, right? But you put the two together, and now you have something that you can put a fire out with. Now, that just doesn't make much sense to me. You have water, and now water extinguishes fire. Now, just a little aside, this is a bunny trail completely, but it's something that is worth our consideration. So someday this world is going to melt with fervent heat. Have you ever wondered, like, how that would happen with with the earth being 70% water? Like, I mean, God can do anything. The water burnt in Elijah's time, whatever. So, I mean, that, that's fine. God can do these things, right? But but I had to explain to me this way one time. All God has to do is just take those atoms apart, and, and suddenly we have hydrogen all over the place, and we have enough hydrogen that we have fervent heat. I mean, the, the earth would be severely scorched. And uh, it's just an interesting thought, and um, I'm not really <laughs> going to belabor that long because it doesn't matter to me how the Lord melts the earth down. But these are these are mysteries. These are indeed mysteries. We could talk about other things. I'm not much of a scientist, so I'd get into the weeds and get on my element pretty quick here. But I've I've heard of other things that are we accept it, but we can't explain it. And so, therefore, things consist because God has pronounced it so. And Paul makes the argument here that Jesus is involved in that. So he is God. All right. In Colossians 2.9, let's turn there. And this is, um, again, I'm just cherry-picking this verse out of a much larger, larger context, but it, it says what we, what we need to... Um, it focuses on what we're looking at this morning. It says, for in him, it's talking about Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Okay? So now, we're gonna, we're going to, um, uh, change course here just a little bit here. We're gonna look at proofs that Jesus was also a man. But when Jesus was walking around here on earth, I, I believe he looked like a man. I, I really believe he just looked like a Jewish man, is what he looked like. But in him, it says, dwelt the, the fullness of the Godhead bodily. There was some reason that people were attracted to this mere Jewish man that was walking around the earth in, in his time. People commented about him. They, they commented whenever he'd speak. They'd say, did we ever hear a man speak like this person? Like, we can't remember. We don't even remember anybody talking about a person speaking like this before. Well, why was that? Well, he was, he was God walking around. Other times it says he taught as a person having authority. You mean there was no rabbi or teacher that ever taught with authority? Well, there was a special authority that went with Jesus. Different times it talked about Jesus knowing the hearts of men said this. So the person might be thinking something. Can you imagine? You're thinking a thing and you're, you're rolling around this in your head. And the person you're talking to says, I know exactly what you're thinking, and he proceeds to tell you that. Uh, then, now that would, that would make you think twice, wouldn't it? Um, the miracles he performed, that had to speak volumes to people. This, this Jewish man that looked pretty normal, he could do amazing things. He could, he could restore sight, he could restore hearing, he could, um, you know, raise people from the dead even. I mean, many things he did. But even though these things were indisputable, um, intentionally they were they were rejected by many, and uh, that's a, a subject all by itself. But it is it is it is um, 
unfortunate that that was the that was the case. It stood out to me in our Sunday school lesson, and I just jotted this down as um, as we were talking in our Sunday school lesson. But did you pick up on the verse there where it says, "We beheld His glory, the glory of the Father," and then it says that He was full of grace and truth. So. John is referring there to Jesus when he walked this earth. And I believe Jesus was a gracious person. Of course, he was a truthful person. And John said, even though when we saw him, we, we, we saw a man, there was something about him when we looked at him, we saw glory too. All right. So there was, there was a combination there that was unusual. And he was the embodiment of God. In him was the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And I don't know how you get the fullness of the Godhead into a mere human. That I can't explain either. Um, that seems very unlikely, humanly speaking. All right, now let's just pivot a little. Now let's look at um, at some verses or some some things that we could look at that are proofs that Jesus, while he was God, he was also fully man. And that's the other unique thing about this. He was fully God and fully man in this one unit. Um Again, beyond our human comprehension. So for the proof of manhood, we go, we start at the same verse that we started out with for the proof of the Godhood. Godhead. So for unto us a child is born, Isaiah says. Unto us a son is given. Alright, so Isaiah is pointing out that there's going to be a child born. That's literally what's going to happen. And there's going to be this son. And then he, he goes on to give him his names. And that's where we pulled from his names that he's God. But at the same time, we're pulling from the prophecy that this person is going to be a baby son. Okay? A child. And that is um, obviously what happened. We could look at the account in Luke 2 where it pronounces that Mary brought forth her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. Um, the the angels that the um, shepherds that talked to the shepherds said the same thing or something similar. For unto you is born in this day <clears throat> in the city of David a Savior which is Christ the Lord. And, ye, and this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe, again he's called a baby, wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Now I don't know how you think about the birth of Jesus. Um, it's... Um, it's kind of normal for us to just picture the um, the normal nativity scenes that we see, and, and I, I don't know how close to accurate that is. Probably not very close, but I I guess I tend to believe that the birth of Jesus was pretty normal. Like I don't think Mary got through that birth with less travail than the regular woman. I just don't think that personally. I think when Jesus was born, he cried like a baby. That's what I think. I think they, they had to dry him off and wrap him in swaddling clothes, as it says they did. I believe that the birth of Jesus was about as normal as can be. That's my personal belief. And I believe when the shepherds went to find the baby, it's exactly what they were looking for. They were looking for a baby. Now, the unusual part was that he was in this manger, but the angels told him that, that that's what they should look for, and that's where they found him. But I believe they saw a baby. That's what I believe they saw. And and um, and to them, I think that baby looked very babyish. Okay. Now this is going to the end the other end of Jesus' life now. But turn with me now to Luke twenty four. This is on the other end of things now, when Jesus is uh, risen from the dead, and there's some things <clears throat> happening after his resurrection that was very unhuman, if you might say. You might say um, things happening that that uh, were unusual after he was he was risen but there were some things that were that were very human too the first thing i'm going to pull out in uh, verse uh, in Luke 24 and by the way this this passage is talking about the Emmaus road and the the um the uh, uh conversation there that Jesus held with with those two we don't know who those two were and then furthermore, how he appeared to his disciples there a little later on. But I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to pull some verses out here. In verse 16, it talks about how the two of them were on this road to Emmaus, and they talked, and they were joined by this stranger. And then it says in verse 16, their eyes were holden that they should not know him. 
All right, so there was a, there was a bit of a miracle happened there that they should have recognized him, but they didn't. However, what I want to bring out here is they knew they were, in their minds, they were walking with a perfect stranger that looked like a human being. I mean, the, 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 Jesus, even though he was, he was doing some unusual things, he was just recognized to these two as a, as a human. Now, the, the, uh, the uh, odd thing is, in verse 30 and 31, they, they bid him into their house, and it says, It came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes are opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. So suddenly the, the stranger that was very human um, became somebody that they knew, and boom, the unhuman happens, and he's gone. So there we have the humanness and the and and the God part of of Jesus coming out at the same time, somewhat. Now, if you drop down to verse thirty nine, uh, these are, this is where the disciples are together, and um, and he appears. He does a very unhuman thing, and he appears, and they're terrified and they're affrighted, and him Jesus trying to quell the their angst. He says in verse thirty nine, "Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself." Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. And so Jesus is making the case that even though I'm doing things that seem somewhat spirit-like, even post-resurrection, I'm very human, if you will. I have flesh and blood, and you can touch me, you can handle me, and and, uh, he, he invites them to do that. So again, a sign of humanity, if you will. Turn with me now to uh, John, just across the page in John 1.14. Again, we're, we're very much in our Sunday school lesson now, and I'm not going to dwell on this long. But the Word was made flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. All right, so Jesus, in His humanity, He dwelt among His human people that were just like Him. Uh, he... He dwelt there. He lived there. He he lived just like everyone else. Um, people did not see him. You know, John was a little odd in the fact that he went out in the wilderness and kind of lived a little odd, dressed a little different. And, you know, he was known as the voice crying in the wilderness. A little unusual. But I believe Jesus was quite usual. I, I don't think he was doing anything um, abnormal in his um, in his life there that made people think, you know, that there was anything unhuman about him. A little bit, um, a little bit difficult to grasp, but um, but I believe that's the case. All right, now let's turn to Galatians four four. <clears throat> so we we while we um, we um, have um, ascertained that Jesus didn't have an earthly father, he did have an earthly mother, and Paul in Galatians four four brings this out uh, very. Precisely when he says, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. So Paul's testifying to the fact that Jesus had red blood running through his veins that was very human, just like we do. So he was made of a woman, made of the Holy Spirit, made of a woman, the two coming together. And then in Philippians 2.7, another um, reference here we can look at that would affirm Jesus' humanity, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Now, there's another um, um, verse in in Isaiah, I believe it's in Isaiah, where it talks about Jesus not having any form or comeliness. So here's what I believe about Jesus. Now, you know, I can't prove any of this, but putting this together, I I would suggest to you this morning that the fact that he had no reputation, and what that means is he wasn't a person that was a big who's who uh, from the way the world defines who's who, right? He was a who's who, but that was a very heavenly definition of that. From the world side of things, he didn't have a reputation. And Isaiah says he was without form and comeliness. Or in other words... He wasn't, he wasn't tall, dark, and handsome, if you will. He, he, I believe he was just a pretty normal, and I believe he was a below average, um, specimen to look upon. That, that's what I believe, just from what, um, just from what the, um, 
the Bible would have to say about him. And to think that somebody heavenly would lay up, lay that aside for a time to come to earth and not only be a man, but be not that great of a looking man. And, and a man that didn't really have much of a reputation. Now you talk about the epitome of servanthood and, and, um, service to mankind. Certainly, certainly it is stunning when one thinks of that. Furthermore, I would point out to you in Matthew 13, 54, right along this, these lines, there was a time there that Jesus was preaching to his people there in the country he came from. And it reads like this, And when he was come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue insomuch that they were astonished. And they said, Where does this man get his wisdom and his mighty works? They said, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And I think, again, it's a testament to the fact that Jesus did not appear as one that should have these things. I mean, Joseph, he's a carpenter. I, I'm kind of getting the feeling that maybe Joseph was a quiet guy, probably not a real articulator of words, um, not one that was preaching in the synagogues. He was just making furniture, whatever he was doing over there. Mary, we don't have much, you know, we don't have word that she said much. And then they're like saying, and look at his brothers and sisters. I mean, like, I don't know. You know, they're not anything that noteworthy. Again, I'm, I'm just pointing out that Jesus, while he had the fullness of the Godhead, there was something that was very fully man, too, and made his countrymen say, I don't know. Uh, yes, we can't dispute his wisdom, but we're not sure how he gets it. He went to the same school we did, and, it, you know, he he's a Martin just like we are, or whatever, you know? I mean, it just... They, they didn't understand it because of his humanness. And it really threw him for a loop. Let's turn now to uh, Hebrews 2 for the next one. <clears throat> 14 to 16. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that at the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Now what I want to pull out of there is that very last phrase, taking upon him the seed of Abraham. Furthermore, not only do I believe when you looked at Jesus, you didn't see anything that noteworthy, but you did see a Jew. I believe he was recognized as a Jew when he went places. People didn't say, wow, where did he come from? Is he like like part Philistine or something? No, he looked like a Jew. Um, and, and this argument that people want to get into sometimes, that you know, Jesus was black or Jesus was this, don't even, don't take the bait. Jesus was a Jew, it's not worth the argument, and it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Um, if God made of one blood all nations, it doesn't really matter. But we have pretty good proof here that Jesus was a Jew, and we should just leave it with that. He was recognized as a Jew. He was a human in that way. Now, the last two I'm going to pull from Luke 2, back to Luke 2 again, and I'm just going to refer to it. In verse 48, um, this is the account where Jesus um, and his parents come to Jerusalem, and it's time to leave, and they leave. And his parents uh, figure he's with the crowd. He's not with the crowd. We remember the story. He's with the doctors there in the in the uh, temple. But Jesus and, and Joseph, or I'm sorry, Mary and Joseph don't know that. And so finally, after three days of searching, they found Jesus. And here's what his mother said to him. Son, why hast thou dealt with dealt thus with us. Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Now here's, here is, I'm going to point this out, and I hope it's not sacrilegious to do so. But aren't youngsters a little bit absent-minded? You know, don't, you know, you, know I, you can see this happening where, you know, somebody would stay behind. 
While I don't believe Jesus was disobedient here, I do believe he displayed some human absent-mindedness. Okay, that made him human. Like, he didn't think about the fact that, you know, I really should check in with my mom and dad here and make sure. No, he was so engrossed, so out of it, if you will, talking to the doctors, that he sat there for three days apparently talking to them and never even knew that his parents were gone. Now, again, take this with a grain of salt. I, I hope I'm not doing injustice to the scripture, but there's something about the way Mary somewhat scolds him that tells me that there was a little bit of humanness there in Jesus growing up. I don't believe he sinned, so I don't believe he was disobedient, but I believe he displayed some characteristics of childishness that goes along with growing up. Because, furthermore, if you drop down a few more verses, it says he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. When, you're in, when you increase in wisdom, you, you begin to realize, you know, I really should tell mom and dad that I'm going to stay here. And Isn't that part of wisdom? So I think there was some sort of growing up that Jesus displayed as he matured that made him a man. The last thing I want to just mention quickly that made him a man is Jesus displayed very human feelings. In Matthew 21, 18, it says that when morning come, he returned to the city because he hungered. Or he got hungry. When he sat down at Jacob's well, it says he was weary. So he sat down. So he got weary. He got tired. When uh, Lazarus died, it said that Jesus wept. All right. So there's, there was emotion there. <clears throat> I would even say that in Mark 3, when Jesus came into the temple and he looked around and his heart was grieved at what was happening in the temple, and it says he was angered, that's some human emotion. Now, granted, it says God gets angry too, so there, there might be some crossing over here, but it angered him. And we, we know something about that too, don't we? We know, um, we understand the, the emotion of anger. However, Despite this display of of, um, anger, it is also recorded that he kept his feelings in check. I believe he was he was what Paul referred to when he said, "Be ye angry, but don't sin." All right, you can do both, but you got to be really careful because when you're angry, you're not thinking very straight, and it's pretty easy to cross over into sin pretty quick. Jesus was also a person that displayed uh, surprise. Um, Jesus one time talking to a centurion about his faith. It says whenever he heard the centurion's testimony, he marveled. Like he was shocked. He couldn't believe it. And also in verse 26, shortly before his um, crucifixion, it talks about his soul being sorrowful, even unto death. Sorrow again. All right, so to wrap this up, why is it important that God became a man? It is important because only by being a man... Could he fully empathize with us mortals and our limitations and trials? That's the reason the Hebrew writer says that he is a a high priest that can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Do you know what an infirmity is? An infirmity, literally translated, means feebleness in mind and body. Do you know anything about feebleness in mind and body? We probably all have to put our hands up, don't we? And it says not only that, he was he was tested in all points just like we were, like we are. And so he knows this, and he can fully empathize with us. Number two, why is it important? So he can intercede for us on our behalf to the Father. And again, back to Hebrews 7.25. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for us. All right? So I don't know what you think about when you think about intercession, but when I think about intercession, I usually think about, I say a prayer, Jesus takes that prayer, and he intercedes that thing to, to the Father. I don't know if that's the way you think of intercession, or that's kind of the way it usually hits me. But as I study this intercession thing a little bit here in preparation, that's a very limited view of intercession. Intercession, the way it's mentioned here, is more like entreating. All right, so so let's let's suppose that you have a friend or um, a, a close friend that he makes a, a real bumble. Let's say you're at work. You two work at the same place. He makes a real bumble. But you know this man, and you know that that bumble was not because he meant to be uh, a bad boy. He didn't mean to do something 
uh, that he shouldn't, but because of whatever, he, do, he does this. But this could get him into trouble. This could get him into a heap of trouble with his boss. So you go to the boss and you say, look, I'm going to entreat for this man. I'm going to put in a good word for him, and I'm going to tell you that while this particular bumble that he made probably should get a demerit or maybe he should be fired or whatever, I'm going to say, don't do that. He's a better person than that. He just messed up. <clears throat> and, and I want you to give him another chance. I believe to some degree, and I don't want to take this too far because you could go way too far with this, but to some degree I think that happens to us as Jesus looks down and in his humanity or in what he understands as he walked here as a human and he sees us in our with our best intentions at times doing things that we shouldn't do or we, we should have known better or maybe we make a misjudgment or whatever, but we don't even recognize it. I think there are times that Jesus says, look, you know, he, he entreats the Father for us on our behalf. Now, if, if you think that's off base, I'd be happy to have a conversation about with, with you about that. But I believe to some degree that happens. Now, I'm not saying that, that he excuses sin, flagrant sin, that sort of thing. I'm talking more about the innocent entreaty when we do things in all uh, good conscience and don't realize we're doing the wrong thing. All right, number three. He became, it was important that he became a man so he could prove that righteousness could be lived out in normal life. And, and this is where we tend to get, we, we tend to go places we shouldn't. And John makes it very clear in, uh, in 1 John that the person that doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. Have you ever thought, well, now who doesn't believe that? Well, I really believe what John is saying there is that that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, but he lived in a manner that the flesh did not dominate what he did. He could live above the flesh. And that's, that's what Jesus proved. He proved that you and I, through the Holy Spirit, have the power to live above the flesh. All right? We can live in the flesh, but we can live above the flesh. And so he proved that. And he gave us the power that we can do the same thing. So thus, even though we're human... And people hurt us. They perhaps even say false things about us. We don't have to hold grudges. We don't have to, um, we don't have to retaliate in any way. We can live above that. We can be morally pure in the flesh. We can have normal human emotions without letting them control us and on and on. Number four is important that Jesus came in the flesh so that he could give solace and comfort as well as resolve to us as humans that face anything from disappointments to indescribable tragedies while living on this earth on a relatively regular basis, actually. And we can live through those things and still be at peace. Jesus did all of the above, and he proved that that could be done and still live in peace. Hard things to do, but Jesus proved it could be done. And lastly, and most importantly, is important that Jesus came in the flesh because he had to do that to save us from our sins. He was made in the likeness of men, Paul says to the Philippian church, and after he was found in fashion as a man, he then further humbled himself and he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now you can't, you can't crucify God. That's impossible, but you can crucify a man. So Jesus had to become a man so that he could be crucified and die for our sins. I believe today the acceptance of the fact that Jesus came in the flesh and our understanding of that and our acceptance of that is what should temper our Christmas holiday, if you will, and make it different from our American friends, the -the run-of-the-mill person. In fact, I just recently ran across a statistic that only 35% of Americans tomorrow will celebrate Christmas as something that has religious significance. The rest of them will celebrate it, but it has absolutely no significant religious significance. And so that's why I think it is completely in order that we as the children of God that believe that Jesus came and in the likeness of man and as God and died for us, while we celebrate Christmas in some regards, just like our society, I think it's, it is vitally important that we keep a fairly sharp 
distinction between the superfluity of the world and the um, and what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. But 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 having a a true understanding of what Christmas is, what it means ultimately. And so it doesn't d- just divulge into something like Santa Claus and Christmas trees. I, I, I just, we don't need to go there. That's not, that doesn't do anything for helping us to understand that Jesus came in the flesh and died for us. And so I hope that um, this exercise strengthens our commitment to Jesus that did come in the flesh and becomes the centerpiece of our Christmas celebration. And I'm going to leave you with these verses and then we're going to kneel in prayer. And he shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is, being interpreted, God with us. Let's kneel for prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you at the close of this service. We thank you for the fact that you took on human flesh, you came in the likeness of men, and that you died for us. And so, Lord, while we look at your birth through this time, help us as we um, think on that and celebrate that, that we would never lose sight of the fact that it's ultimately the fact that you lived and you died and you rose again, that we can have life and we can have it abundantly. So we thank you for that abundant life. We thank you for your willingness to come and live among us, to show us how to live. And Lord, may we ever be mindful of who we represent as we walk the uh, the ways of life and uh, show you to mankind. Lord, bless those of our number that could not be with us this morning for whatever reasons. Those that are sick, I pray you would grant them healing. Those that are traveling, I pray you would grant them safe passage. And Lord, um, Uh, Once again, bless us through this Christmas season, and may you receive the honor and glory through it all. We ask this in your name. Amen.